Good and gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as a church and explore our faith and lives more deeply. As we enter into this experience tonight, open our minds and our hearts to what we will hear this evening. May tonight guide us as we will hear in our first reading from Proverbs this weekend to advance in the way of understanding. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The format this evening will consist of a presentation by Bishop-elect Robert Barron, followed by questions and answers. The questions were pre-submitted from people across the diocese, and it is our plan to conclude this evening at 9 o'clock. Before I introduce Bishop-elect Bar Bishop Barron, excuse me, when our first speaker, Dr. Robert Wicks, joined us this year on May 8th, following his presentation, a number of people approached me with questions about the Bishop Keene Institute. And in light, of this, in light of these questions, the staff and I believe that we should offer a bit of a background on the Institute, its conception, and its future moving forward. When I arrived as the pastor in 2013, I learned that Immaculate Conception had a long history of dedication to adult faith formation. I heard stories from brother priests and people across the diocese who remember coming to the parish for engaging and exciting evening discussions and lectures from some of the leading voices in the church at the time. Last summer, an idea came to light to bring this past piece of Immaculate Conception's history alive again, and work began last August that culminated in the lecture series launched on May 8th with Dr. Robert Wicks, and which continues tonight with Bishop-elect Robert Barron. So why did we call it the Bishop Keene Institute? Because the Institute, a ministry of Immaculate Conception, it takes its name and its animating spirit from the fifth Bishop of Richmond and the founding rector of the Catholic University of America, John J. Keene. Bishop Keene lived and ministered to the church in a time of profound growth and change, much like our own today. He embodied a profound commitment to education, to faith-seeking understanding, and he worked tirelessly to provide those opportunities at every level for children, university students, the laity, and his priests. As bishop, he constantly reached out and crossed boundaries. He was the first Catholic bishop in Virginia to minister actively to African Americans. He promoted ecumenical understanding by preaching in Protestant churches, colleges, and local courthouses. He saw beyond the narrow debates around church and state to a society fully capable of integrating its religious communities. His commitment to Christ revealed itself in Bishop Keene's truly Catholic worldview that the experience of Christ leads us to engage with the world and its needs in every place and every time. The Bishop Keene Institute takes as its mission the future, the furthering, excuse me, of that relationship with Christ and the commitment to the world that flows from it. The Institute, we believe, serves as a gathering place for learning and conversation and community. And our primary effort, the Bishop Keene Institute Lecture Series, brings the leading voices in Catholic and soon ecumenical thought, ministry, and education to Hampton as a way of engaging and energizing our community in Hampton Roads to participate fully in the mission of Christ's church. 
While the 2015 series is underway, we have planned and scheduled the 2016 series. We are finalizing the 2017 series, and we have already entered into discussions with possible speakers for 2018. The Institute's efforts are supported by ongoing education, pre- and post-lecture events held at Immaculate Conception that are open to the public, a dynamic website and online resources, as well as prayer and community involvement. In the words of Bishop King, the Institute strives to inspire, quote, a new and abundant outpouring of the Holy Spirit of grace and truth in our age and our country for the sanctification of the new epoch in the history of the church and the world, which all can see unfolding. Joining us this evening is a man whom we believe embodies the spirit of the Bishop Keene Institute, Bishop-elect Robert Barron. Bishop-elect Barron was born in Chicago in 1959. He's a graduate of the Catholic University of America. He received his master's degree in philosophy in 1982. He was a member of the Baselin Scholars Program at Theological College. Father Mike Bowling and I both have commented as graduates of Theological College that the Baselins are the smartest men in the building. <laughs> and if you're studying philosophy and need a tutor, you ask a Baselin for help. Bishop-elect Barron was ordained to the priesthood for the Archdiocese of Chicago in 1986. He served as associate pastor at St. Paul of the Cross Parish in Park Ridge, Illinois from 86 to 89. And in 1989, he began his doctoral studies in theology in Paris. In 1996, his book, Thomas Aquinas, Spiritual Master, was published and was later given the Catholic Press Association first prize in spirituality. He has written numerous books over the years, including, and now I see a theology of transformation, The Strangest Way, Walking the Christian Path, which also received a Catholic Press Association award, and the Eucharist. But in July of 2005, while continuing to write, Bishop-elect Barron moved into the digital age, so to speak, publishing his first DVD entitled Untold Blessings, The Three Paths of Holiness. His DVD works continued, and perhaps the most groundbreaking of them all is his award-winning documentary series about the Catholic faith entitled Catholicism, released in 2011. The series has aired on hundreds of PBS stations across the world and has been used by parishes, universities, and schools as an essential resource. In 2013, a follow-up documentary, Catholicism, the New Evangelization, was released, and he is in the midst of filming another series, Catholicism, the Pivotal Players, a series on the mystics, scholars, artists, and saints who helped shape the church and changed the world. It is scheduled to be released in the fall of 2016. Next to Pope Francis, Bishop-elect Barron is the most followed Catholic leader on social media. <laughs> he is, truly. He He has over 550,000 fans on Facebook, over 70,000 followers on Twitter, over 60,000 YouTube subscribers, and over 250,000 people receive his daily email reflections during Lent and Advent, and his regular YouTube videos have been viewed by over 13 million people. 
In 2013, or excuse me, 2018, then Father Barron was named the first holder of the Francis Cardinal George Chair of Faith and Culture at the University of St. Mary of the Lake Mundelein Seminary outside of Chicago. And in 2012, Cardinal George, then Archbishop of Chicago, appointed then Father Barron president of the University of St. Mary of the Lake and the 10th rector of Mundelein Seminary. And as most of you know, most recently, on July 21st, Pope Francis announced his appointment as Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Bishop-elect Barron... <laughs> Bishop-elect Barron has given retreats, missions, and workshops on various aspects of the spiritual life across the country and the world. And tonight, we are honored that he has agreed to come to the Diocese of Richmond as part of the Bishop Keene Institute to speak to us on evangelizing the heart of a shepherd. Ladies and gentlemen, Bishop-elect Robert Barron. Thank you. Hey, Sean, thanks. Very kind. Thank you. God bless you all. Thank you. Thanks. Well, God bless you all. Thank you very much, uh, Father Strong, for that uh, beautiful, very generous uh, introduction. Bishop, thank you for having me here tonight. Um, you know, when I was named uh, the Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles, I, we had to cancel all sorts of public appearances because I just don't have time to do them. So my secretary saw me when I got back from L.A., and she goes, you have to go to Virginia. <laughs> she did. <laughs> So you have Diane Giovanetti to thank. She said, 2,000 people have paid to see you. So, <laughs> so she's right. I'm here in Virginia and happy to be here. And so I'm number two to Pope Francis. I'm coming after you, Pope Francis. <laughs> <laughs> Delighted to be number two to, to Pope Francis. <laughs> Listen, everybody, thank you for having me. And I, I, what a wonderful um, lecture series that you've inaugurated here. And I'm honored as an uh, alumnus of Catholic U to be under the aegis of uh, one of the great rectors of Catholic University. Uh, but what a great thing for the life of the church and precisely for the new evangelization that a lecture series such as this exists. So I really am honored uh, to be part of it. I discovered your traffic today too, by the way. I, <laughs> and I'm from Chicago, I know about bad traffic, but uh, Father Sean said now there's you know, a lot of traffic as you come in. And, so we got out of the airport fine and we're doing, doing pretty well. And then, and then traffic slowed down. Oh, a little bit of your traffic. I'm not kidding. 40 minutes later, we moved for the first time. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I mean, Chicago's not that bad. Uh, so I got a little taste of uh, Norfolk, by the way. Right? <laughs> Norfolk. Norfolk. <laughs> Norfolk, as we said on the plane on the way from Chicago. Norfolk is so much more beautiful. All right, listen. My topic tonight is uh, something very close to my heart which is the new evangelization. I know you've heard that term a lot. It's become almost a cliche. Starting really with John the 23rd, I think is the grandfather of the new evangelization. If John Paul II is the father of it, John the 23rd is the grandfather of it. Vatican II is the great council of the new evangelization. And then from John Paul through Benedict, now very much to Pope Francis, we see the call for this. If you doubt that Francis is interested in it, reread Evangelii Gaudium, that wonderful statement he made just a few years ago. 
So the new evangelization has been given to us by the popes, by Vatican II, as the great uh, call of the church today. But we also know, statistically, the reasons for it. Vatican II, everybody, wanted a revival of the Mass, didn't it? It wanted more Catholics to come with full, conscious, and active participation to the Mass, which is the source and summit of the Christian life. That's Vatican II. But 75 to 80 percent of our own Catholic brothers and sisters don't come to Mass. That's a serious, serious problem, and repugnant to the intentions of Vatican II. What's the fastest growing religious group in America today? The, the nuns, not N-U-N-S, the N-O-N-E-S, right? Those who have no religious affiliations, the fastest growing group in America. What's the second largest religion in America? Ex-Catholics, right? Catholics number one, but ex-Catholics are the number two religion in America. They say that um, you know, a lot of the Protestant megachurches that movement started around Chicago, that a lot of the megachurches are filled with ex-Catholics. This should bother a community dedicated to the new evangelization. So what I'm going to do in the course of this evening is present seven recommendations. Now, don't panic. I won't go on very long about each one. But seven recommendations for all of us involved in new evangelization. Okay? So if you keep in score, we're going to go through seven. Here's the first one. I think we new evangelists should lead with the beautiful. We should lead with the beauty of our faith. You know, in our culture today, uh, often beginning with the true or the good is a non-starter. If you say, here's the truth I want you to believe, well, people, who are you to tell me what to believe, right? Even worse if you say, well, here's the good. Here's how you ought to be behaving. You're behaving wrong. Well, all the hackles go up. In our relativistic time, therefore, starting with the third transcendental, you know, the philosophers talk about the true, the good, and the beautiful. Starting with the third transcendental can often be a much better way to go. Why? Because the beautiful is less threatening. The beautiful is more winsome. Just look. Just look. I'm not telling you what to think, how to behave. Just look at that. Just go to Paris and look at the Sand Chapelle. Or go to Calcutta and just look at the work of Mother Teresa's sisters. I'm not telling you what to think. I'm not telling you how to behave. I'm just saying, look. And the wager is, the wager is, you will be so beguiled by what you see that you'll begin to ask on your own the questions, how is that possible? What is the thinking behind such a thing? What's the community of people that produced such a thing? The wager is you tend to go from the beautiful, it's splendid, to the good, I, I want to get into that, to the true. Oh, now I understand it. I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, my first baseball team was the Detroit Tigers. Any Detroit people here? Really? Uh, I grew up outside Detroit, and my dad took my brother and me to a Tigers game in the summer of 1967. And um, I remember it like it was yesterday, coming up out of the bowels of the stadium, and uh, bright lights were on, and the field looked so green, and the Tigers with their white, white uniforms, and the game unfolding, and just the splendor of it. If you like baseball, 
and to watch professionals play it at this very high level. Well, it so beguiled me when I saw it that my first move was, I want to play. And so I started playing t-ball, right, that summer. And then that started my little league career that lasted till I was about 16. The beautiful led me to play, to play. Now, having played baseball for a long time, I came to understand baseball from the inside, right? Having played it, oh, that's, that's why we have this rule. And that's why, oh, that, I see now why that rule makes sense. Oh, that's why we do what we do. Even, baseball fans, even something as arcane as the infield fly rule, right? You know about that? It's a good rule. It's a little bit of, you know, a little hidden corner of baseball. But if, you know, two runners on, the pop up, and the guy could just automatically drop it and a double play. So infield fly rule. It's a good rule. And I came to understand it having played baseball. I came to play it having been beguiled by it. From the beautiful to the good to the true. Can I suggest to you, if you're trying to draw a little kid into playing baseball, what don't you do? You don't sit down and say, now, let's discuss the infield fly rule, <laughs> right? You don't begin with the infield fly rule. You begin with maybe, maybe just bring them out in the field and show them. Maybe show them a game of people that really know how to play it. The, the colors and the smells and the, and the ambiance of a, of a baseball stadium. And then you draw them into play. Don't correct them right away, but let him play the game. And then on his own time and according to his own rhythm, he'll come to understand the game, right? I would suggest that's not a bad evangelical strategy. And my inspiration for that, if you want the technical side, is Hans Urs von Balthasar, the great theologian, who was a favorite of both John Paul II and Pope Benedict. His systematic theology begins not with the true or the good. It begins with the beautiful and then leads to the good, and then comes to the true. How do you draw people to the truth of the Catholic faith? Show it to them. See? Show it to them. That's why, along with Balthazar, I really believe in the saints as an evangelical strategy. That's why in my Catholicism series, where we did a lot of showing of the beautiful, Chard and San Chapelle, every place else, but I highlighted the saints. It's like drawing a kid into baseball by saying, look, look at if you're an old-timer, look at Ted Williams' swing. Still beautiful to watch. Look at Roberto Clemente uh, round the bases. Still beautiful to watch. Show it, show it in its beauty, and then draw people gradually to its truth. So that's, I think, my first recommendation. Start with the beauty of the faith. Recommendation two, don't dumb down the message. I'm screaming on purpose here to make my point. Are there, are there teachers, by the way, here? Some teachers and principals? Are there some people involved with education? Um, this is my message to you. Don't dumb down Catholicism. I went to first grade in 1965. You all know how old I am anyway from my introduction, but now you can calculate it. Um, so I came of age in the immediate post-conciliar period. The council ended in 1965. And so I have no memories of, of the pre-conciliar church, no training whatsoever. It was all after the council. The council was created, everybody, by the cream of the intellectual crop in the 20th century. Think of, you know, Henri de Lubac and, and von Balthasar and Danielu and Ratzinger and Wojtyla and Rahner and on and on. The cream of the intellectual crop produced Vatican II. And by God, those documents, reread them now 50 years later. Reread them. 
They're brilliant expressions of the Catholic imagination. But somehow, somehow, the council was followed, in my experience anyway, by a very dumbed-down Catholicism. I don't blame the council, but something happened in the implementation of it that was not true to the council. You know, the desire to be relevant, that was very big in my time. Uh, Read the signs of the time, reach out to the culture, to the world. If we use too highfalutin language or we're using concepts that are hard to understand, we won't be relevant, et cetera, et cetera. This produced what I call, and some are in the room I'm sure old enough to remember, the banners and balloons Catholicism of the 1970s when I was coming of age. Um, and tell you the God's truth, when I was going through Catholic school, my, God bless my parents, sent me to Catholic school, and I knew that math was serious. I knew science was serious. I knew history and I knew English were serious subjects. But religion, we, we did a lot of collages and we made banners and, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I'm serious. I didn't think of religion as a serious topic because it wasn't presented in a serious way. I call this too beige Catholicism. Right? A Catholicism has lost its distinctive coloring. Its edges have been rounded and softened. It's become eh, blandly acceptable, but not vibrant and intellectually compelling. It was also, may I just say it now, I'm old enough, and heck, I'm, <laughs> I'm a bishop-elect now, I can say it publicly. <laughs> it, was, it was a pastoral disaster of the first order, the dumbing down of our faith. And the reason I say it is, and I, I'm speaking from my generation now, a lot of people in my generation left the church. Why? Because they grew up and life hit them in the face. And see, a dumbed-down, beigeified, uh, uncompelling, not intellectually satisfying Catholicism is not going to respond to the challenges of an adult life. And so a lot of people who were raised on banners and balloons left when they grew up. It didn't meet the challenges of a real uh, life. John Henry Newman, one of my great intellectual heroes, says that one of the signs of a properly developing Christianity, meaning one that's alive, it's alive, is that it relentlessly thinks about revelation. That's wonderful, isn't it? And by the way, his model there is Mary, the mother of God, who ponders these things in her heart, we hear. She takes in the date of revelation, but not dumbly. She ponders it and thereby becomes the model of all theology. That's a sign of a vibrant faith. When I was coming of age, there was a great preferring of heart to head. There was a kind of anti-intellectualism that crept in. But see, that's not the best of our faith, everybody. That was a sort of the romanticism of the time. But you look at Paul, Chrysostom, Jerome, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Bonaventure, Newman, Chesterton, John Paul II, you're not going to find a bracketing of the intellectual. You're not going to find a one-sided elevation of a heart overhead. That is not our tradition. Mind you, too, I just read a book recently that was reminding me of what a flourishing of Christian intellectualism there was in the mid-20th century. Just think of some of these names. W.H. Auden, the great poet, C.S. Lewis, now enjoying a new vogue. Thomas Merton, the greatest spiritual writer of the last century. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. Flannery O'Connor, for my money, the best fiction writer of the last century. Fulton Sheen, the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. 
Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul Tillich, Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh, all these names, extraordinary, all flourishing around the middle of the 20th century. That's the best of our great tradition, and we should not dumb it down. You know, something I found in my pastoral work is we, we have now really two generations since the council that have come to expect the dumbed-down Catholicism. And I'll give you an example. Uh, this is some years ago. I was, I was in a parish. I was preaching. And this man came up to me, whom I knew quite well. He was a lawyer, high-level lawyer. And he said to me, hey, Father, Father, you know, you better cool it on these sermons. I mean, you used a couple of three-syllable words there that it went right over. <laughs> I said, Can you, you're a lawyer, for God. I mean, you went to law school. You read high-level journals. Doctors reading high-level journals in their field. You have private equity investors doing high-level. Why would you expect your religion to be something that's given to a sixth grader? You know, why do we expect a dumbed-down religion? Why do we accept it? Here's another quick story. Uh, you know, ten years ago or longer now, when the new atheists were all the vogue, when Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins and those guys were really coming after religion, I was on a number of these programs, you know, debates and so on. And this one, it was a program up in Canada, I remember, a radio program, and it was a live interview. And the guy was a Hitchens advocate. So he was coming after me, and, you know, I, I would answer him, but then he'd answer back, and a little, you know, a little rough. At the end, you know what he said to me? He said, Father, as we close, would you at least admit that Christopher Hitchens got you Catholics thinking about these things for the first time? Well, I, I paused to let my annoyance sink in. And... <laughs> And I said, look, I'm the very inadequate representative of the oldest intellectual tradition in the West that produced, I went through my names, you know, Augustine, Anselm, Thomas Aquinas, etc. Trust me when I tell you, we did not need Christopher Hitchens to get us to think about these things for the first time. Um, right? The last little thing, maybe you've heard it before, because I, I did something, I think, that got up on YouTube about this, but... Um, this is some years ago when my niece was 18 and she was going into her senior year. It was around this time of year, so going back to school. And her father, my brother, said, oh, take a look at, at Neela's books on the table, you know, proudly. So there's a big pile of her books for the coming year. And on the top was um, Virgil's Aeneid in Latin. So she's a Latin student. She's reading the most difficult poem ever written in Latin in Latin. Underneath that was Hamlet, right? And not Hamlet for dummies or Hamlet for... Hamlet by Shakespeare, the whole text. Underneath that was this she was science, big fat science book bristling with complexity. Underneath that was this big paperback with a big picture on the cover. Inside, big print. That's her religion book. <laughs> and she's going to a famous Catholic high school around Chicago. And I said to my brother, now, does this bug you at all? What? What are you talking about? I said, she's reading Hamlet in English. She's reading Virgil in Latin. She's reading Einstein in science. And she's reading a comic book in religion. <laughs> you know? So you know what I did? Her, her birthday is right around this time of year, too. So I usually would just give her some money. But I went out that year, and I bought her uh, volume one of Aquinas' Conor Gentiles. I bought her Augustine's Confessions. I bought her Bonaventure's Mind's Road to God and Chesterton's Orthodoxy. And I said, I said, these are the Catholic versions of the books you're of the other books you're reading. You know, why are we dumbing down our faith? So that's number two. So lead with beauty. Secondly, don't dumb down the message. 
Here's my third recommendation for the new evangelization. Preach with ardor. Preach with fire. John Paul II said that new evangelization is new in method, it's new in um, style, and it's new in ardor, in fire. Aristotle said long ago that people finally only really listen to an excited speaker. It's a very important point, isn't it? It's an ancient, ancient idea. People finally only listen to an excited speaker. If the speaker can't get worked up about what he's saying, why would you bother listening, right? Ardor is key. Vatican II, I'm going to argue, following a great mentor of mine, Cardinal George, who just died a few months ago. Vatican II, he always said, was a missionary council. What he meant was, unlike, for example, Nicaea, Chalcedon, Trent, Vatican I, it wasn't so much responding to a pressing doctrinal dilemma. And John Twenty-Third said that. He said, we're not, resp- we're not having doctrinal issues. But rather, John Twenty-Third wanted to bring the light of Christ out to the world. Von Balthasar, whom I mentioned earlier, wrote a book in the 50s called Schleifung der Bastionen in German, which means raising of the bastions, R-A-Z-I-N-G. You see what he meant? Was that he felt the church was still crouched too much behind its own walls. The idea was to knock down the walls to get the message out. A bit like Noah's Ark there. That's how the church fathers read Noah's Ark, was now that we preserve this beautiful remnant of God's creation. But the idea is not to hunker down behind the walls of the ark. The idea now is to open the doors and open the windows and let the light out, the life out. That was John XXIII's vision of Vatican II. But see, I'm going to argue, again, from my experience of coming of age in the post-conciliar period, it was not really a time of missionary ardor, but too often of a church wringing its hands, a church unsure of itself, unclear about what it wanted to present. But see, hand-wringing is not missionary ardor. It inspires a kind of, eh, reaction. You know, here's something from John O'Malley's book on Vatican II. It's a good book. It's a, it's a historian looking at Vatican II. But there's a line in it that just struck me. It's like the light bulb went on over my head. He said, Vatican II was the greatest meeting of all time. Now, see, what he meant was this giant crowd of thousands came together for four years. It's a four-year-long meeting. You know, and now, look, I, I've been a seminary rector. I'm now going to go out to L.A. to be an auxiliary bishop. I, I've been involved in church administration a bit. I understand meetings and their importance. I do. They're, they're important. But do you want to be in a meeting all day? I don't. What, what meetings are, meetings are a way of, of pausing to reassess, to reconsider, and to re-inspire ourselves to go out and do the work, Right? What you don't want is to be involved in a meeting all day long. Meetings are times when, to some degree, we throw our project into question so that we can then go out with a renewed vigor, right? Now, Josef Ratzinger, who was a great man of the council, wasn't he? He was one of the leaders at Vatican II. He was a man of the council par excellence. And after the council, along with many of the other leading theologians, he became an editor of a magazine which still exists called Concilium the council, the stated purpose of which was to perpetuate the spirit of the council. 
So Ratzinger was on the editorial board of Cochilio. But then as the years wore on, something began to bug him. It began to uh, dawn on him that the church's purpose should not be to perpetuate the spirit of any council. Now see what he meant. Councils are necessary, as meetings are. They're necessary from time to time that we pause and we ask and we wonder. But what you don't want is to put the church in the permanent stance of a meeting. That's why Ratzinger broke with Concilium and along with Balthazar, whom I've mentioned twice now, founded a new magazine called Communio, Communion. Because they felt that's what the church was really all about, was communion. Can I suggest to you, if we're permanently in the stance of concilium, we're not going to be filled with the ardor necessary to proclaim the gospel. Here's something from a couple years ago. Uh, I was invited to give a talk at a conference on evangelization. right? And I was there like on day three, so there were many speakers before me. So I got up for my talk and I said, evangelization is about declaring the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. At which point, the whole crowd broke into applause. And so I said, on behalf of the risen Christ, I thank you for your applause. <laughs> but, and the reason, it's really, it truly struck me as like, why, why are they applauding? That seems so obvious to me. Why would they be applauding that? So afterwards, I asked some of the people, what was that? Why were, why were they reacting that way? They said, Father, we've been here for three days. We've heard about sociology. We've heard about cultural analysis. We've heard about ecclesiastical programs and strategies. No one has spoken of the resurrection. That's a problem, everybody, who wants to do the new evangelization. Euangelion, right? Good news, glad tidings. It's not about church strategies. The euangelion is about Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We need to recover, I think, within our Catholicism, a keen sense of the primacy and centrality of the resurrection. And then, look, we'll have the same quality you find in the New Testament. You go from Matthew to Revelation, what do you find? You find what I call a, a grab-you-by-the-lapels quality. You know what I'm saying? The, the New Testament authors, they're not trading in abstract, bland, spiritual truths which you can find in any poet or spiritual writer or mystic. And I have nothing against that. I'm all in favor of spiritual truth. But you read the New Testament. It's, it, these are people that are going to the ends of the world as they knew it. And they wanted to grab everybody by the lapels and tell them something. They called it euangelion, good news. And the good news was, as, as Paul keeps saying, doesn't he? Go through Paul's letters. Anastasis, anastasis, anastasis. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. That's the message. When we forget about that, we lose our ardor. And without ardor, we're not going to be listened to. You know, what we're up against everybody here is what I call the uh, culture. Uh. See, that's the result of the, our relativistic culture. Uh, truth, that's your truth. I got my truth. That's true. As long as we, you know, tolerate everybody. You don't get in my way, I don't get in your way. No. <laughs> you ever see uh, uh, the teenagers? Whatever. You ever see that? <laughs> Ever. <laughs> you say something. <laughs> Whatever. See, I, I think that's a trickle down 
from a, what used to be at a very high intellectual level has trickled down to the general culture. It's the fruit of our relativism. But you know, the, the uh, culture is, imagine like this big lazy lake, right? And on the lake are people on air mattresses, all individuals on their own air mattress, just floating around. Don't bump into me, I won't bump into you. I, I'll tolerate you, but don't, no, no, don't tolerate me. I mean, it's safe, I guess, but what's it lacking? It's lacking energy and life and purpose. John Henry Newman said, what gives a river its energy are its banks, are the firmness of its banks, right? With firm banks, the river's going to move, it goes someplace. Now, knock down the banks in the name of freedom or relativism, whatever. Knock down the banks. There are no clear uh, uh, truth. There is no surety. What's going to happen? That river is going to open up into a big, lazy lake, right? on which we all float on our individual air mattresses. What we want is the surging river, the river of the Christian thing, thing, which is centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and that gives some oomph. And see, believe me, they say that what, what grabs young people, it's not relevance. That was my generation. Make it relevant. What grabs young people is, they say, intelligence and passion. If their teachers, their formators, are intelligent about what they're saying and they're passionate about it, young people will listen. That's ardor. Okay, now keep the score around number four already. So we're getting there. Number four is tell the great story. Tell the great story. What do I mean? Evangelization, the good news, is a climax to a great story. It's not an isolated truth, like a philosophical principle. Evangelization is the climactic conclusion to a great story. Remember, we all saw the Lord of the Rings, right? You know, we saw the movies and read the great books. and We all know the basic story of Frodo and the ring, and he's trying to bring it back to Mordor and destroy the ring. And he does, finally, after all these adventures and... And then, remember, the mountain gives way and the lava's pouring down. There's poor Frodo and Sam on the side of the mountain. They've done their work, but now they're going to be killed. But at the last minute, Gandalf the Grey comes on the back of the great eagle and they swoop down and they, and they save Frodo. Frodo lives. That, by the way, back in the 1960s, people would write that on, on wall. Frodo lives, you know. <laughs> well, let's say you never heard anything about this story. The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, you know nothing about the story. And someone goes, Frodo lives. <laughs> See, well, I don't know what you're talking about, Frodo. Who's Frodo? You know, one of the problems is, is we Christians increasingly are announcing the climax of a story that people don't know anymore. And that's why it's not compelling to them. Christianity is the climax, it's the last chapter in this great story that begins with creation, first act, the second act, the fall, that through sin, creations become compromised. The third act, God's rescue operation, which is a people, Israel. God forms a people after his own mind, his own heart, teaches them how to move as he moves, to think as he thinks, to worship him aright. He gives this people law, covenant, Torah, prophecy, temple, all these great institutions designed to shape them according to his mind so that 
so that Israel, by the integrity of its life, would draw all the tribes of the world back to God. That's the great Old Testament story. What happened, though, was Israel itself became compromised, right? Israel didn't follow the covenant, didn't follow the Torah. It, it, the, the temple became corrupt. The prophets weren't listened to. And so the world continues to long. Israel was not able to fulfill its mission until, until this young rabbi, Yeshua from Nazareth, comes out in the hills of Galilee and he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. He says in reference to himself, doesn't he, you have a greater than the temple here. I myself am the fulfillment of the temple. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said in the Torah, the highest possible authority for a first century Jew, but I say, which means he's an authority greater than the Torah, he's the fulfillment of the Torah. This same young rabbi comes to Jerusalem itself, comes to the Holy Temple. I will tear this place down and in three days rebuild it, referring to the temple of his body. Jesus himself is the place now of right praise. The prophet Ezekiel had said that when the temple was restored after its time of corruption, when Yahweh's glory would return to the temple, then water would flow forth from its side for the renewal of the world. Remember that beautiful lyrical passage. Jesus now hanging dead from the cross, his side pierced by the Roman soldier, and out came blood and water. Evocative, of course, of the sacraments of the Eucharist and baptism, but no first century Jew would have missed. The water coming forth from his side is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy. Here's the true temple. Here's the renewed temple. And then, and then, the first great evangelist, Pontius Pilate, puts over that cross, a sign, in the great languages of that time and place, Greek, Aramaic, and Greek, Hebrew, and, and Latin. Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, right? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Ah, see, no first century Jew would miss it because they knew that when the king of Israel came and had gathered the tribes of Israel, he would now become the gatherer of all the tribes of the world. Israel's mission would now reach its fulfillment. Pontius Pilate is the first one to announce that. Who picks up the message after he sees the risen Jesus? But Rabbi Shaul, remember Rabbi Shaul from Tarsus, who had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the rabbi in Jerusalem, who knew, who knew everything I've been talking about here, knew it in spades. And once he met the risen Jesus, what does he say? He goes all over the world as he knew it. And what does he say? He says, Jesus Curios. Jesus Curios. Jesus is the Lord. The watchword of the time was Kaiser Curios. Caesar's the Lord. That's, that's what you'd see when you greeted someone. You'd say, Kaiser Curios. Caesar's the Lord. Do you see now why Paul spent so much time in jail? <laughs> you see, they, <laughs> They knew exactly what he was doing when he said, no, no, Jesus curious. Jesus is the king. He's the Lord. He's the one to whom your final allegiance is due because he's the king of Israel who is now meant to gather the tribes of the world. Now look, here we are in Virginia, 
we're on the coast of, of an ocean. I mean, Paul never knew this continent existed. And yet here we are, gathered around the God of Israel, because we've been attracted by Jesus Curios. You see, my point here, everybody, is this is the proclamation of Jesus as the climax to a great story. We need, especially educators and catechists and preachers and teachers, we need to remind the world of what story they are part of. This great story of the Bible. You know, um, I'll close this section with this. Um, people say, oh, Father, I mean, the Bible, it's so long and it's, it's funny names and all these weird stories. And, and kids, can kids ever begin to learn the Bible? This is about five years ago. Um, the daughter of a person that works at Word on Fire, my media ministry, came in. And uh, she was eight at the time. Josie, eight at the time. And Josie, like a lot of little kids, loved Star Wars. They loved the Star Wars movies. And her mother said, oh, tell Father Bob all about Star Wars. So this little kid starts. And I, mean, I know a little bit about Star Wars. I can do Han Solo and, and uh, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. I mean, I know the basics of it. This kid, I mean, she was, that was Star Wars 101. I mean, she was way beyond what every little sub-figure and minor story and subplot and going on and on, Count Dooku and all the... Well, you know what, what occurred to me as she was doing this wonderful performance? I thought, don't tell me that kids can't understand the Bible. <laughs> don't tell, right? Don't tell me... She gets Obi-Wan Kenobi, she can handle Methuselah. You know what I mean? She, she gets Count Dooku. She, so I, I think we really, really, really underestimate what our kids are capable of. That's, again, my dumb, don't dumb it down. But the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Jesus will make sense only against that background. If you drop the background of the Bible, you know what he becomes? In short order, a teacher of timeless spiritual truths, like any other guru, any other mystic. That happens a lot in our culture. Read a lot of the literature about Jesus that turns him into one teacher among many. Ho-hum. We need to tell the great story again. Okay, number five. Number five is stress the Augustinian anthropology. I know it sounds abstract. I'll, I'll explain it. Augustine, one of the great heroes of the faith. I think the single greatest expression of Christian anthropology is found on page one of the Confessions, this masterpiece of, of Christian literature. Page one, you find this formulation. Lord, you've made us for yourself, and therefore our heart is restless until it rests in thee. Beautiful line, and it's dead right. And I see it played out time and time again. Lord, you've made us for yourself, and therefore, notice how he says, by the way, in his Latin, cor nostrum, it's in the singular, Lord, you made us for yourself, plural, but cor nostrum, our heart. See, because it's what brings everybody in the world together. Despite our differences in gender, background, education, language, etc., what do we all have in common? We, what does Bruce Springsteen say? Everybody's got a hungry heart, right? Uh, that's Augustine's point. Uh, I can't get no satisfaction with Mick Jagger a, a generation before. <laughs> but that's, that's very profound, though. <laughs> I try, and I try, and I try, 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 and I can't get no satisfaction. Well, that's human life, because we're not made for this world, ultimately. We're not made to be satisfied by this world. 
We've got hungry hearts because they're hungry for God. The greatest tragedy of the secularism of our time is the putting down of this great desire, is the masking of it. Telling especially young kids, oh no, don't pay attention to that. That's all an illusion, that's a fantasy, that's an imposition. That's doing huge damage psychologically and spiritually to young people. The awakening of the religious desire and the proper directing of it, that's a hugely important evangelical move. You know, um, C.S. Lewis called, I love this, he referred to this experience of a longing that's never satisfied in this life as joy. He called it joy, this kind of delicious sense of something more. I say delicious because it, it becomes clear to us not in the toughest moments of life, but precisely in the best moments of life. When I've, I've reached some great moment of, of friendship or of um, sensual pleasure or of intellectual attainment or artistic achievement, and yet what do I feel? What do I feel? Th there's still something more, right? <laughs> That's not enough. That's not what I was made for. It's precisely at the best moments of life that the hungry heart most asserts itself. The great biblical story here, everybody, is the story in 1 Kings of Elijah and the priests of Baal. You know the story I'm talking about. When the 450 priests of Baal, there's a lesson there, by the way, that the, the avatars of the false gods, they're always thick on the ground. Always have been, still are today, right? All the avatars of, of false worship, they're all over the place. How many prophets of Yahweh? One. There's <laughs> one, Elijah. So it's true today. Elijah challenges them. Remember up on, the, on Mount Carmel. You, you build the altars to your gods and, and you call on them. I'll build an altar to God and we'll see what happens. Right? So they build the altars and the priests of Baal uh, pray and they beckon and they, and they hop around their altars and nothing happens. At which point, Elijah mocks them. I've always loved that. Um, they're gods. Maybe they're napping. Maybe they're on vacation. I don't know where they are. <laughs> and there's even, my, my friends who know um, Hebrew well say there's even the implication of maybe they're in the bathroom. I, I don't know where they are. <laughs> but, so Elijah mocks them publicly. At which point, they, they even more frantically hop around the altars. Even, remember it says, slashing themselves till the blood flowed. And still no answer, no response. Then Elijah, of course, calls upon the true God. Down comes the fire, and, uh, and he wins. Okay, but what I want to see is that there's so much more there than just my God's bigger than your God. It's making the point that I'm trying to make in my halting way. Think of the, the altars of the priests of Baal as all the attempts that we humans make to satisfy the hungry heart with something less than God. Thomas Aquinas, by the way, said the four great substitutes for God are wealth, pleasure, honor, and power. I find that my pastor works very illuminating with people. The four things that we tend to worship, wealth, pleasure, honor, and power. What do we tell ourselves? Just get enough of those four things, you'll be happy. Right? We say to ourselves, say to our kids, listen, songs, music, radio, TV, movies, same message, trust me, to start listening for it. If you just get enough wealth, pleasure, honor, and power in you, 
you'll be happy. So what do most of us do? We spend our lives, like the priests of Baal, hopping around these altars, begging, begging, cajoling, even, even harming ourselves in the process. And anybody here who's been involved in the 12-step stuff knows about that, right? How addiction works is, is I, I become addicted to booze or to sex or pornography or drugs or whatever it is, is I get a buzz from something, right? But then the buzz wears off. And so I have to get more of it. And so I get a little panicky. And I get it, and I get a buzz, but what happens is that buzz now wears off a little quicker. And now I start panicking, and I'm, I get need more and more and more. Before I know it, my whole life has become a process of hopping around one of these altars, even to the point of harming myself, right? You know, Augustine referred to sin as concupiscentia, concupiscence. I think a really valid translation of that in our terminology would be addiction. Addiction. The woman at the well, right? You come to this well every day and you drink, but you get thirsty again, don't you, says Jesus. I want to give you water bubbling up in you to eternal life. That's evangelization. Is her hungry heart was unsatisfied by the water of that well, wealth, pleasure, honor, power. I want to give you water bubbling up to eternal life. That's what we do when we evangelize. Okay? Number six, sixth recommendation, stress Thomas Aquinas' doctrine of God. Now, i got my theologian's hat on here a little bit. And I make a point that I think is so important. Uh, across the board in our theology, in our spirituality, and in evangelization. Here's the point. Thomas Aquinas does not refer to God as ens sumum in his Latin. That means highest being. Rather, he calls God ipsum esse subsistence. That means the subsistent act of to be itself. You say, oh, my, what an abstraction. But it's a very important point. See, I'm a being, you're a being, this building is bigger than we are, and then the planet's bigger, and then there's these really huge planets. And if there's a highest being in the universe, I guess it must be some big, I don't know, galaxy or some big planet or something. That's the highest being. But that's not what God is. God's not one being among many. Aquinas says that God is not in the genus of being. It's a really interesting thing, isn't it? I'm in the genus of humanity. So are you. We're all part of this genus, right? And when you say, heck, we're all part of the genus of being, this podium, you, me, the building, we're all beings, right? Well, wouldn't God at least be in that genus? And Thomas says, no. He's not in the genus of being. Because God is not one thing among many. Watch, by the way, the new atheists make this mistake over and over and over again. They think of God as some being out there, up there. Rather, God, Aquinas says, is ipsum esse subsistence. He's the sheer act of to be itself. That means he's the creative ground in and through which all finite things exist. Now, here's the upshot of it. Here's the, why that's so important. It means that God is not competitive to his world. See, think of two beings. See, two beings can't occupy the same place at the same time, can they? There's a natural over and againstness about beings. How can this podium become ash? 
Well, by being burned to the ground, if I destroy it, right? How's an antelope become a lion? Well, by being devoured, right? It, the lion will just will absorb it. There's a natural competitiveness among finite things. That makes sense? But God is not a finite thing, which means God is not in competition with his creation. St. Irenaeus, back in the, in the second century, saw this with great clarity. And he uttered this wonderful one-liner. He said, Gloria Dei, homo vivens. That means the, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Beautiful. You could lose most of Christian literature. Keep that one line, you'll keep the heart of it. The glory of God is when we are alive. Because he's not competing with us. Look at the ancient myths. Look at the Greek and Roman myths. Gods are competing with us all the time, aren't they? The God's glory when human beings are, are put down. Remember Prometheus tries to steal fire from the gods. The gods are so angry they punish him for, the, for all eternity. There's a rivalry between divinity and humanity. When the, when the ancient gods break into human experience, what happens? People are incinerated. Right? They, they, they give way because the gods come bursting in. Then there's the Bible. What's the great manifestation of God in the book of Exodus? Moses sees a bush that's on fire but not consumed, right? Beautiful. As the true God gets close to his creation, he makes it radiant and beautiful and does not consume it. The richest possible expression of this is what we call the incarnation. Jesus is, remember the language we use and how, how relevant it is now. Jesus is truly divine and truly human. His divinity and humanity are not in competition with each other. But rather, precisely by the proximity of his divinity, the humanity of Jesus becomes radiant and beautiful. Ah, now that's the model of Christian life. That's what we announce to the world. God makes us like the burning bush. He makes us radiant and alive. See, everybody, that's the message that none of the atheists gets. From Feuerbach and Marx and Freud all the way up to Christopher Hitchens, they all say some version of God is a competitor to the human project. If God exists, I can't be free. That was Jean-Paul Sartre. If God exists, I'm in perpetual infantile fantasy. That's Sigmund Freud. Christopher Hitchens, if God exists, we live in a permanent North Korea. You see what they're all saying is God who broods over human life, who oppresses us, who competes with us. Part of the fault is ours, by the way, that we've been so bad at communicating who God truly is, the God of the burning bush. Let that come through in our evangelizing. Okay, one more, I promise I'll stop. Uh, number seven. And I, I'm doing it uh, on purpose at the very end here, which is to use the new media, right? New in expression, new in method, new in ardor. I, I'm, not, I'm not leading with the new media. It's, it's actually, I think, very ironic that I am associated with media. I learned how to type on a manual typewriter. It shows you first how old I am. Remember manual typewriters? When I was in high school, I learned how to type on a manual. I got my first um, computer when I went to doctoral studies in 1989, when I went to Paris. So I'm, I'm, I'm not exactly cutting edge in, in technology, 
I got these wonderful kids that were on fire office that know how to do all that stuff. Um, however, I do believe that the um, emergence of the new technology, the new media, is comparable only to the Gutenberg period, when the printing press emerged, in terms of the revolutionary power that it holds. I think there's a revolution now in communication technology which is unparalleled except for Gutenberg. And we've got to be right on the edge of that. I think it's a prime moment for the Christian churches in general, for Catholicism in particular. We've got to get involved. Um, just to give you an idea, and I say it not to be trumpeting Word on Fire so much, but wordonfire.org, so the, the, uh, our base operation, has more monthly users than America, Commonweal, the National Catholic Reporter, and the National Catholic Register combined. And again, I'm not saying it to show off or, or, or isn't Word on Fire great. It's to show you what's happened in our communication technology. That this site, with its Facebook links and all that business, can far outpace where we've been through the print media. But when I was getting going, you know, many years ago, and I, you wanted to write something that was more, you know, for a general audience, you'd write an article, and you'd pray and hope against hope that maybe an editor in America might read it, and if you're really, really lucky, it might get published. I mean, now, with these media, we can announce our, our worst to the world. I can put something up on YouTube, and it's 24-7 all over the world. We put something up on YouTube, and within... 20 minutes, I'm getting emails from um, Nepal and from ships at sea, you know. It just shows the power of this new uh, technology. Uh, two little quick stories. Um, this is some years ago now. This kid wrote to Word on Fire. He's 19. And he said, I, I just want to tell you something, that I hated the Catholic Church, and I especially hated Catholic priests. But I loved Bob Dylan. Well, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, and I've done a lot of videos on Bob Dylan's music. So this kid was Googling one night you know, on the computer, and up comes one of my videos on Bob Dylan. <laughs> he said, he saw me with the Roman collar, and he said, I wanted just to delete you. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> but he actually listened, watched the video, listened to it, and he said, well, okay. And then he watched another one on Bob Dylan, and another one, and then it led him to other videos of mine, then back to the website, etc. And again, this is not typical. I'm not proposing it's typical at all. But he said, I'm now in the RCIA program. Well, no, it's good because it just shows you it's the, it's the sowing of the seed, right? And we, you do these things, and I don't know where they land. I, I didn't know that kid from Adam. I, I don't know how in the world, but I love that about the internet world, that it just sends the seeds everywhere. The second one is like it. It's this from a young woman wrote to me, and she said, uh, it was during the, it's a couple years ago now, when, uh, when poor Charlie Sheen was having all his troubles, remember? And she was Googling his name and came across a website. And then Charlie Sheen led her to Martin Sheen, Charlie's father, the great actor. And then Martin Sheen, remember, took his stage name from Fulton Sheen, because he admired him so much. So Fulton Sheen, Martin Sheen led her to Fulton Sheen, which led her to Catholic preaching, which led her to me. And, and then she, she watched videos, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember I thought, well, Lord, if you can use Charlie Sheen to bring people, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Um, um, I tell my students at Mundelein all the time, they're always interested in new media, get out there, YouTube, blah, blah, blah. And I always say, before you even think about the new technology, I want you to get immersed in the old technology of books. 
I want you to have something substantial to say, which is why I led tonight on purpose through six moves before we get to the new media. I think all of us as Catholics need to be really immersed in our great tradition, and then we have something um, to say. Uh, I've alluded a couple times to John Paul II, and I'll close with this, uh, the new evangelization. New in expression, new in method, new in ardor. There's the big three, you know. To find not a new faith, but, but new expression, a new way of, of communicating it. That, I think, is what Pope Francis is about. Finding a new uh, means of communicating it. New methods. I mean, there's all the new media, if you want. Use all the methods that, that we have now. But maybe most importantly is the new ardor. The new ardor, the new fire, you know. People only listen to an excited speaker. We need to get re-excited about the great story, which climaxes in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, which shows forth the way the human heart is satisfied. It shows forth the non-competitive transcendence of God. It shows forth the beauty of our faith. And in doing that, I think we can become practitioners of this new evangelization. God bless you all. I'm glad I came to Virginia to be with you. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Thank you very much, Bishop-elect Barron. At this time, I'd like to invite Cass Hooker to come forward for our question and answer period. Cass is the Director of Evangelization at Immaculate Conception and the coordinator of the Bishop Keene Institute. Once again, these questions were submitted ahead of time from people across the diocese through our website. And based on the number of questions we received, unfortunately, we know we will not be able to get through all of them, but we hope to cover as many as possible. Cass? Thank you, Father Prince. So, Bishop-elect Barron, are you ready to begin? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Great. Then our first question is, would you share your vocation story with us? And if there is a person that had a lot of impact on your decision to into the seminary, if you'd let us know about that person as well. I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can with these. Uh, it's Thomas Aquinas. And what I mean is, when I was 14 years old, I was at Fenwick High School outside Chicago, and um, there was a freshman religion class, and one of the young friars taught us the arguments for God's existence. And I don't know why, I was a Catholic kid going to Mass on Sunday, but I wasn't particularly interested in religion. And for some reason, it was like a bell went off in my, in my mind, and I became fascinated with the reality of God. And I've never left the path, really. So it was Thomas Aquinas that started me on that. Great, thank you. A writer from Charlottesville, Virginia, states, Shortly after Pope Francis was quoted as saying, who am I to judge? A gay friend told me that the Pope had inspired him to consider attending mass again after being away. He wished to rekindle his relationship with God and the Catholic Church of his youth. So this person's question is, how can we encourage our gay friends, especially those in committed relationships, to respond to the call to worship in the Catholic community and secondly, does Jesus' teaching on the sacrament of marriage mean that gay individuals 
must find some other place of worship? These are easy questions tonight that you, you've given me. Um, no, I, I do. I appreciate that. It's, it's obviously on the minds and hearts of a lot of people. Can I, I may say, I'll say two or three things to a really complicated matter. I have a deep conviction that no one should identify him or herself primarily by sexual orientation. You know what I'm saying? And I think we are first and foremost beloved children of God, and, and that should be the primary identity. Then whatever else we say about ourselves should find itself around that center. So that's the first thing, I think, uh, for anybody, not just for gay people, but for anybody, that your first identification is that. Second observation, if the first and last things that, that gay people hear from the Catholic Church is you're intrinsically disordered, something's gone wrong with our own presentation. If that's what people take away from the Catholic Church, something has gone deeply wrong. It doesn't mean now the church can't call people to conversion. It should. But the first and last thing that a person hears should not be you're intrinsically disordered. So I think there is with Pope Francis, we got to find a better way to state uh, what we hold. And the first thing people should hear is, you're a beloved child of God. Christ died for you, and God loves you with his infinite love. There's the first thing anyone ought to hear. It's the last thing anybody ought to hear. Within that framework, the call to conversion can take place. To Pope Francis, too, I, I do think it's been very unfair the way people have globalized the who am I to judge remark. It had to do, remember the context, with a priest who was gay and was working in the Vatican and has now committed himself to living a celibate life and was seeking God. And in that context, the Pope said, who am I to judge? You know, well, I think fine, when you add all those, those um, um, qualifiers, the trouble is people globalize that remark into a kind of generic, well, who cares, anything goes, which it seems to me he wasn't implying at all. So those are three very quick remarks to a really complicated question. Great, thank you. What are you looking forward to most in your new ministry as auxiliary bishop in Los Angeles? <laughs> I wish I knew. I mean, honestly, I, I, I don't. I, the bishop's laughing because he knows about this. The, the way you find out about this in the Catholic Church, uh, four weeks ago, I'm in my, my room at Mundelein, and I said Mass that morning, and I was back in my room wearing shorts and a T-shirt watching golf, and... <laughs> And this, um, the phone rings, and it's like, hello, and it's the Apostolic Nuncio. The Holy Father has appointed you Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles. And I can tell you is that every single word of that statement flummoxed me. And there I stood like, what? So <laughs> that's how I found out. And I've gone out now to L.A., and I met with the Archbishop, and we had a few conversations. I'm, I really am going with a sense of... Um, of you know, the call of the Holy Spirit and with, with an eagerness that way. But honestly, I know so little about the church in L.A. It's a wonderful, rich, complex, ethnically diverse, I mean, all those wonderful things. Um, the pastoral region I'm going to have, there are five pastoral regions. Each region has a million Catholics. So each region is bigger than the vast majority of dioceses in the country. So I know I'm facing a big challenge. And I, I wish I knew more about it. I'm studying Spanish in a more serious way. So, yeah, no, help me, help me. So that, that's really where I am right now in terms of L.A. Okay, great. Um, could you comment on the upcoming Synod on, on the Family in Philadelphia? Specifically, first, what is your opinion regarding possible changes in marriage annulment? 
And secondly, a Holy Communion reception after divorce and remarriage without annulment. Okay, another easy question. Um, <laughs> hey, time's up now, isn't it? <laughs> no. Actually, you mentioned Philly. I'm, I'm going to Philly in September. I'm doing the first um, of the keynotes at that. And what I'm talking about there, they asked me not to uh, go into the hot button issue so much, but to talk about Imago Dei, that were made in God's image. And so I'm interpreting that along the lines of priest, prophet, and king, and the call of the laity. So that's what I'm talking about there. At one point I make it, I'll just bring it up as a, as a contextualization. I think part of the poetry and genius of Catholicism is that we are simultaneously extreme in our demand and extreme in our mercy. You know what I'm saying? And we don't need to compromise either one or to find some middle ground. The church makes extreme demands on us. It calls us to heroism, right? The church's job is to make saints. I mean, God makes saints, but the church is the, is the vehicle by which God makes saints. He, God's not interested in spiritual mediocrities, right? In spiritual halfway measures. He, the call is to sanctity, to be a saint. So that's the high demand. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't qualify that or we shouldn't lessen it. At the same time, the church is extreme in its mercy. I remember years ago in the seminary, there was this old timer, a Jesuit guy, a great priest, and he taught the confession practicum. And he said, if someone comes to you in confession and says, Father, I've committed murder, your response should be, how many times? <laughs> and and his, his point was, and I think it's a, it's a good point, was like, you know, the church's job here is to mediate the forgiveness of God. And so murder, yeah, I, I've heard that. I, I've heard that. How many is it, our, our job is to, is to mediate that mercy in its fullness. And so even someone saying, look, I've committed 75 murders, but from the bottom of my heart, I'm, I'm sorry for it. I seek God's mercy. They receive God's mercy. God's mercy is, is infinite. There's no limit to it. So there's no limit to the demand, and there's no limit to the mercy. I think that's Catholic poetry. And what I'm, I would resist is attempt to mitigate either one. You know what I'm saying? If you look at you left and right, there's a tendency to mitigate either one. I'm with Chesterton. The church's waves both flags simultaneously. So I look at some of these family and, and sexuality issues within that framework. Extreme demand and extreme mercy, both. Great. Um... From your perspective as a rector at a seminary, what do you see are the trends in priestly vocation over the past few years and mm. on into the future? Yeah, good. Uh, I'm, I, I've been involved with seminary work for most of my adult life, and I've been a rector now the past three years. I'm, just, I'm fiercely proud of these, these young guys who are coming to the seminary. We have 230 we're starting with at Mundelein this year. We're the biggest we've been since the 1960s. Um, there's an upward trend in all the seminaries around the country. Um, what I hear from them, and mind you, these are kids who come having discerned their vocations under the cloud of the sex abuse scandal. So the ones who are coming to seminaries now in their early 20s, well, heck, they were kids in 2002. They, they came of age under the cloud of all that. When I was discerning priesthood back in the 1970s and 80s, it was still in a Catholic context like the that's a great thing, priesthood, of course, wonderful, and your parents and friends are all proud. These kids now, when you say, you know, what do your, your parents or what do your friends think about this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the feelings are much more mixed. 
And I, I just have deep admiration for them as they come forward nevertheless. And to tell you the truth, we all expected there to be a big dip in numbers after the scandals. There really wasn't. There was a little bit in the beginning, but there was not been a substantial one. Now the numbers are swelling. So I find that very encouraging. And uh, I'm encouraged deeply by these guys who are coming despite this enormous burden of the scandal. Um, the John Paul II generation came in force beginning in the 90s, and they had a lot of John Paul spirit. Now these guys don't remember John Paul that clearly. So are they Benedict people? Will they become Francis people? Probably. But they have a lot of the John Paul evangelical spirit, I would say. Thank you. Um, who is perhaps the most obscure saint that you would like more people to know about? The most obscure saint? Um, my mother. My mother should be more, should be more honored. <laughs> I do mean that, she's great. You know, maybe I'd mention um, Pier Giorgio Frassati. Do you know about him? Um, he's the patron of World Youth Day. Um, saint who, all right, a saint who died in 1925, I think it was, from Torino, and um, sportsman, athlete, mountain climber, all this, but also spent, um, you know, all night in Eucharistic adoration, gave his life in service for the poor. When he died, he died of a virulent form of polio when he was 25, and at his funeral, the people came out by the tens of thousands. And his family, a prominent family in Torino, had no idea. They had no idea he had this impact. And then when the poor came out, they had no idea he was the son of this famous family. And I love that story about his funeral brought together people that had nothing in common, but his own sanctity brought them together. Uh, John Paul raised him up as the patron of World Youth Day. So I, I'd mention Frasati, maybe. That's great. Good, Frasati. You write often and comment about popular movies and books. Um, so would you like to share a recent book or movie that you enjoyed and would recommend for its spiritual value? Yeah. Um, see, real recently, you know, the, the ones I love now, this goes back a few years, the remake of True Grit by the Coen brothers. You know, True Grit, the John Wayne movie, was remade by the, the Coen brothers are, are some of the most spiritually alert filmmakers today. And that was really well done because that book, from the 60s has a lot of spiritual themes. And you know what, if you want the story, I was talking about extreme demand, extreme mercy, justice and love, the two, it's the two arms of Rooster Cogburn as he carries the young girl uh, who ends up losing an arm because she was all justice. She was all moral demand without mercy. And the book and the movie, I think, are about the two arms of God, you know? So that one. The other one I love, of course, is um, Clint Eastwood's um, Grand Torino. Remember the get off my lawn? But I don't know if you remember, I, I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it, but the way that movie ends is one of the very best presentations of a doctrine of salvation, of how Jesus, by his innocent suffering, saves us and liberates us and condemns sin. It's extremely clever and extremely uh, wise. So those two would come right to mind. Okay. So our last question. Um, what might the church look like in about 50 years? In 50 years? Well, I'll be gone, that's for sure. Um, that's, a, that's a really, that's a good searching question. I don't know if I have a, a ready answer to it. Um, you know, maybe it's a cliche to say it, but it's certainly becoming more diverse, more ethnically um, complex. 
more culturally, um, you know, cross-pollinating. I mean, that's certainly true. It's certainly becoming a browner church if you look uh, worldwide. Uh, the church is exploding in Africa. It's exploding in parts of Asia. There's very encouraging words coming out of China, you know. Uh, look at Cuba right now. We're hearing about Bibles flooding into Cuba, making a difference. So it's becoming certainly a browner church. The center of the church is shifting south, certainly. Um, so away from the European centers and, and our Western centers. So I think that's going to continue by all accounts. Um, and, you know, I, I, that's part of the poetry of Catholicism, isn't it? Uh, I think of my Irish ancestors that brought the faith all over the world, including to Africa. And now uh, will Africa re-evangelize many parts of the world, probably. So I'd say that. Read Philip Jenkins on that. Do you know his work? Philip Jenkins has wonderful work on the kind of sociology of religion today. I'd say it'll become a more southern, a browner, and more ethnically diverse church, certainly. Um, the rest is up to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you. Oh, Once again, thank you to Bishop-elect Barron for joining us this evening. As I said, it is, it was an honor for you to be with us, so thank you very much. And I know from speaking with your secretary and begging her after you were named bishop to make sure that you came, I know that your schedule is very complicated, and we appreciate you taking the time to be with us. As you leave this evening, several of Bishop-elect's books and DVDs are available for purchase in the lobby. Credit cards, checks, and cash are accepted. And in addition, we've had questions from individuals who wish to make a donation to the Bishop Keene Institute to support its ongoing efforts, and there are opportunities to do that at the merchandise table as well. The next lecture is scheduled for Friday, September 18th at 7.30 p.m. We will host Jesuit Father Tom Reese and Dr. Massimo Fajoli for a discussion on the Francis Effect in the United States. The discussion will be moderated by Mr. Peter McCourt. Jesuit Tom Reese is a senior analyst with the National Catholic Reporter and a former editor-in-chief of America Magazine, and he also serves as a member of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And Dr. Massimo is a professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minneapolis, who has written extensively on the Second Vatican Council, though his recent book is entitled Pope Francis, Tradition in Transition. Dr. Massimo visited our diocese a few years ago, and we look forward to welcoming him back. Tickets for this discussion between uh, Father Reese and Dr. Massimo are on sale in the lobby tonight for $15. Again, cash, check, or credit cards are accepted. And in addition, there is information concerning our pre-lecture discussions that will examine the writings and contributions of these men to the church in preparation for their September 18th presentation. All of the pre-lecture discussions are open to the public. They are not limited to, to Immaculate Conception parishioners. Before I close, a word of thanks to all our volunteers this evening, to members of the Bishop Keene Institute Planning Committee who put in hours and hours of work to make tonight a reality, the incredible and dedicated staff of Immaculate Conception, and we would uh, be here much longer if I thanked every single one of them by name, but please know of my gratitude to all of you for all of your hard work to help make tonight a reality. There is, though, one person that I do want to thank by name who has coordinated everything and everyone for the Bishop Keene Institute, and that is Cass Hooker. 
We can, we can credit much of the success for tonight to her guidance and her efforts, and so I thank you, Cass, for helping to bring the mission of the Institute alive for all of us here tonight. Tomorrow morning, you will receive an email with a survey about your experience here tonight. We invite you to complete this survey as it will help us with our future planning. And in addition, by completing the survey, as we did with tonight's presentation, if you complete the survey, you'll be entered into a drawing for a chance to win two free tickets to the next presentation. <laughs> thank you for joining us tonight, and we hope to see you again for future events. But before we leave, thank you once again to Bishop-elect Barron. And Bishop-elect, as we depart, would you kindly offer us your blessing? Please stand. The Lord be with you. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.